If you brought a copy of the Bible, please find Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. We're beginning a new series today, um, a series through the book of Exodus. And if the plan works out, we'll cover it in the next 14 weeks. We'll finish it on the Sunday right before Advent starts, so right at the end of November. All right. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, hope you have, Exodus chapter 1. Notice how it begins. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and it goes through the rest of these names. What you need to see is the book of Exodus starts with a family. Um, literally, the book of Exodus starts with the word and, but in English literature, we don't believe you should start books or stories with and. It's not good form. Um, this book does, so does the next book, Leviticus, and the next one, Numbers. They all start with the word and, so that in their original language, so that you know this is not a brand new thing. This is the next part of the story that the Bible's been telling. And so what we see here is that this extended family that we first met in the book of Genesis, they showed up first in Genesis chapter 12 when um, God turns to Abraham and says, look, through you and your kids, I'm going to heal this world. I'm going to solve these big, ugly problems that are ravaging people's lives, that are destroying nations and countries and the environment and all of that. I'm going to heal it, all of it, Abraham, through you and your offspring. And it's just this little family. The book of Genesis is about how that's likely not actually going to work out because they can't even make babies for most of the book of Genesis. And it's hard to grow from a family into a nation when all the women seem to be barren. And so that's a lot of Genesis, this kind of the brokenness of the world is in the wounds, and it's in the relationships. And, and when this family does tend to have babies, these babies start hating each other and trying to kill each other. And so it's like, man, you picked a doozy of a family to try to pull this solution off. So we get to the end of Genesis, and, and there's 70 people. The family's expanded a little bit, and there's a famine, and they all move down to Egypt. And they've been in Egypt, when we get to this part of the story, for about 430 years. And the family has grown, and we see in this first paragraph of Exodus that the family has grown massively. That apparently that old problem with barrenness is no longer an issue. This family apparently, at one point it uses the word, the land is teeming with them. It's the same word used in Genesis 1 of the fish. They were sort of apparently like rabbits. Um, they were very successful, like the downtown rabbit crowd. It's overrunning us. So here's this family. They're growing, growing, growing. And we see that the emphasis of the first paragraph is that this is happening. Notice especially how this shows up in verse 6 and 7. Verse 6, there's only one verb. The verb died. Then Joseph died in all his generation and all his brothers in all that generation. One verb, the death of that founding generation. Then the next verse, verse 7, has five verbs. All the opposite of death. And they just come tumbling out, cascading into this kind of crescendo of life and birth and multiplication. Look at verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, literally teemed. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Five verbs, fruitful, 
teamed or swarmed, multiplied, became exceedingly strong, filled. Now what's interesting is that those five verbs all come from Genesis chapter 1. They all come from this moment when God is creating the world and he creates humans. And right after he creates humans in Genesis 1.27, listen to what God tells humans. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what you're supposed to recognize when you get to Exodus is that this is a continuation of the story that's been going on all along. And, and, the, and the amazing, miraculous expansion of the family of Abraham, this is God's work. This is what God said he blesses humans with. So they're receiving God's blessing in their multiplication. It's so important at this point to see that, that behind Israel's growth is God. And then you get to verse 8. And verse 8 is like coming around a corner that you weren't prepared for. It's dark. Very dark. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Putting it in modern translation, we have a new political party in office. This political party that's now in office doesn't like the old immigration policy. So they're going to change the way the government relates to this large immigrant group. It says that the new Pharaoh did not know Joseph. It's not that he didn't know of him or about him. It's that he rejected the policy that Egypt once had toward Joseph and his descendants. No matter what benefit Joseph had brought to the country 400 years ago, that it produced this kind of beneficial policy of nurturing this immigrant group and helping them and giving them space and seeing them as our friends, the new regime, the new dynasty of pharaohs, they had a very different view of how to treat this group of people. So when it says in verse 8 that the new king did not know Joseph, it's not so much that he forgot him as he rejected him. It means he didn't acknowledge any continuing obligation to Joseph or to his family. He rejected the agreement of toleration that had existed for 400 years between Egypt and the Hebrews, the Israelites. And so verse 9 says that he immediately creates an us versus them group in his nation. He said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many. And they are too mighty for us. So the, the new Pharaoh, maybe he's trying to consolidate power. And this is a great way to do it, right? Create a common enemy. Create an enemy. And let your people know that you can deliver your people from that enemy. So he, he does this. And then notice what it says in verse 10. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land, which is an ironic foreshadowing of basically what happens in the book. Now, it's absolutely essential at this point to recognize that Pharaoh is against what God is doing. 
See, if you didn't pick that up in the first paragraph, that God was behind the multiplication, then in this paragraph you think that it's just politics. But it's not. It's more than that. It's a battle of gods. It's Pharaoh who acts like a god and claims godlike power, and his country relates to him as a god. It's Pharaoh a god against Yahweh, the god of the Hebrews. Now this is the heart of the book. The book of Exodus is a battle between gods. And the big question is, which god is stronger? Which god is kinder and better? Which god is the true god? Now, Pharaoh represents not only this hostile force against God's people, but against God's work and God himself. And so he launches this plan, and it's got three phases. The first phase is verses 11 through 12. His first phase is forced labor. Right? Verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Now remember the whole goal, going back to verse 10, is to crush the Israelite spirits and to keep them from having babies. But it doesn't work. Verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. His plan actually backfires and does the exact opposite. He's wanting to stop the growth of the, the Hebrew people, but instead, somehow, um, it's like very white to them or something. It just <laughs> leads to more. Now, how does that happen? And why does that happen? Well, remember, this is fundamentally a war of gods. This is a war between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Pharaoh, the God of Egypt. And in round one, it's not that Israel wins, it's that God wins. God won, Pharaoh zero. Phase two, verses 13 to 14. Pharaoh turns up the heat. Notice what it says in verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly uh, made them work as slaves. So in phase two, Pharaoh turns up the heat by enslaving Israel. Now in case you think I'm reading this whole thing in terms of a battle between gods, in case you think I'm over-reading and reading that into it, let me show you something really interesting in verses 13 and 14. Five times in these two verses, the same word is repeated. In Hebrew, it's the word abad. In English, we can translate it work, or serve, or worship. It, 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 it's all three of those words. So we're told that Pharaoh is forcing Israel to work for him, to serve him. Turn to chapter 4. Look at verse 22. God sends send Moses to confront Pharaoh. And he tells Moses to tell this to Pharaoh. Thus you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. That's the battle of the book. Who's Israel going to serve? Five times. Pharaoh is using violence and brutality to get Israel to serve him. And God is at work to get Israel to serve him. 
Now, on the one hand, this shades over into worship. Because when worship is done right, God's people are serving him worship. In fact, that deep um, kind of double entendre of this word is in our churches still today. Because most churches call this thing we're doing right now a worship service. And the reason churches do that is they're using in English, they're trying to capture both natures. That what we're doing right now is an act of serving God worship. And when we worship God well, we serve Him. And when we serve God, we worship God. Now, on the other hand, there's a level of service in our world that looks like worship. Think about how some people serve their job so wholeheartedly, so all-consumingly. You could say they worship work or success or whatever that thing is giving to them. So what we're seeing in, 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 in these verses is that five times, back in verses 6 and 7, we're told that God blesses his people with multiplication. Five times. And then five times we're told in verses 13 and 14 that Pharaoh is demanding service and worship. That's the battle. The battle is between God, Yahweh, wanting to bless and give gifts and give life and Pharaoh, who's a god of death, that's going to kill life and demand allegiance to himself. That's phase two, enslavement. And then phase three, because the first two um, phases don't really work, Pharaoh lays all his cards on the table, right? He comes up with a new plan, infanticide, kill the baby boys. Notice verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, let him live. Let her live. And then this plan does not work. And once again, um, here it is that God is fighting Pharaoh. It's between God and Pharaoh. Notice verse 17. The midwives feared God, and that's why they didn't do it. See, that's the real battle, God and Pharaoh. So then in verse 22, Pharaoh commands all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, that you shall, but you shall let every daughter live. And so imagine this. This is a terrible God to have. This God not only will kill babies, but he brutalizes his entire population by forcing them to do it with him. So there you have it. The book of Exodus tells this story. And in chapter 1, it introduces us to the major characters. Who are the major characters in Exodus? It's Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. It's the Hebrew people. And it's Pharaoh, the God of the Egyptians. And so Exodus not, chapter 1 not only introduces us to the major characters of the book, it also introduces us to the basic conflict of the book. This is a battle of gods. The God of, of the Egyptians and the God of Israel. Who is Israel going to live with? Who's Israel going to be enslaved to? Because slavery to Pharaoh brings death. But what does slavery to God bring? It brings life. It brings health. And who is better for Israel? And who is the stronger God? And who is the better God? And, and if Israel stays enslaved to Pharaoh, what will their life be like? And if Israel is delivered by Yahweh... What will that mean for Israel's life? Now, spoiler alert. If you haven't read the book or heard of it, it's been around 
And so I'm going to tell you how it ends. Last page. God wins. Yahweh wins. And you can sum up the whole story of Exodus in this phrase. God delivers Israel to himself for the life of the world. That's the theme of the book. God delivers Israel from this tyrant, from this false god, from this murderous... He delivers Israel to himself. But the book doesn't stop with Israel just getting to the mountain and worshiping God. No, it ends with God sending Israel out with his presence for the life of the world. Now, here's the deal. Exodus is not just a story of something that happened. It's not just a true story from the past. It is that. But the the book of Exodus is something that God preserved for us so that we can learn who the true God is and so that we can see the gods that are ravaging us and so that we can long in our hearts for the one true, beautiful, all-powerful creator God to deliver us. I think the biggest thing the book of Exodus can do for us today is to help help break the spell that if you're not religious, you're not serving a God. You see, we've gotten so sophisticated that we're convinced they're all that we can be without like worshiping a God, that we can somehow escape being ravaged by a powerful force. In the book of Exodus, I think over the next few months, the Lord, please show all of us that just because we don't live in a society with lots of little statues and people having rituals to bow down for them, we've just translated our worship into other forms. Right? The man who works on Wall Street 80, 90 hours a week, and loses his children. Isn't that just another version of Molech? Who, thousands of years ago, in order to get its favor, people would put their babies into his burning hot hands, and they would catch on fire and die? How many parents in this group have not sold out their families because of a loyalty they had? to something that at the end of the day was as cruel as Pharaoh. We've got to learn to see that there are gods in our midst. And God wants to show us that he's better than all of them. And if we would turn to him and let him deliver us, he will give us a better life in this world and in the world to come. God delivers us to himself for the life of the world. That's the theme of this series. If you will turn to him, he will deliver you to himself for the life of the world. You know, here's how the late, great David Foster Wallace put it in a college commencement address at at, um, Kenyon College. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is who or what are we going to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh, Yahweh or the Wicked Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles. The outstanding reason for choosing one of them is that pretty much everything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap, where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty, then you will always feel ugly. 
And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to feel better about yourself. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will feel stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now look, what, what Wallace is saying there is pretty much what's going on in the book of Exodus. Israel is going to serve somebody. Either Pharaoh or Yahweh. There is no godless place to stand. There is no such thing as not being religious. Our modern secular society has conned us into believing that God and the whole idea of worshiping God is something that only unenlightened people do. And by getting us to think that Hindus or Muslims or Jews or Christians or Buddhists, that those people are religious, but if you opt out of that stuff and you're secular, then somehow you're not religious. But that's a sleight of hand. And it's really dangerous because humans serve God. That's what it means to be who, who we are. So when we read about Israel enslaved to Yahweh, who's dead set on destroying Israel, we've got to learn to see that that's the story of our lives too. Your problem and my problem is not fundamentally that we sin and break God's law. That's part of it. That's a big problem. That's very serious. But the core of our problem is that we reject God. And we worship other things. We serve other things. We give our hearts and our allegiance to something else. You will give your heart and your allegiance to something. And when you do that, when you pour out your affection and your attention and your desires, and, and when you pour it out on anything other than the God who created you, it will destroy you. Everybody needs to be saved. The problem for middle class people is that what you need to be saved from isn't always manifest to everybody around you. There are a lot of people who succeed in life, but they're being destroyed, and they know it. Not everybody. Everybody needs to be saved by Jesus. Everybody does. And you know the parts of your life where you're being ravaged. Only Jesus will save you. Every other God, every other thing you put your trust in will turn into a Pharaoh. When we give endless amounts of time to social media or the stock market or our preferred political party, when we put our deep hope in free market economics or socialist economics, when we put our deep hope in social justice or resisting social justice, whenever we put our deep allegiance into anything, it becomes a God that ravages us. When we serve forces or ideas or we... We center our identity around a celebrity. When we do these things, we are giving power over to things that develop force and destroy us. And so when we give our power and our authority to anything but the Creator, then suddenly that thing will run rampant over us. And just like Israel and Egypt, a relationship that starts out good, that's the trick. When they got to Egypt, it was good. And, and that's how idolatry starts. It's a good thing. And it gives goodness to you. And then as time goes by, your relationship gets with, with it gets wonky, and suddenly it's a tyrant. If you give yourself to money, you will treat people, as time goes by, as creditors, debtors, customers. 
not human beings. If you give yourself over to sex, if you flood your imagination with pornography, then as time goes by, you will begin to define yourself in terms of your preferences, your practices, your history, and you will see other people as objects of sex. If you get wrapped up in the desire for power, as time goes by, it will become a god. And you will define yourself in, in your relationship to others in terms of collaborators or competitors or pawns. This is the human problem. Everybody's got to serve something. And there's only one thing that if you serve it, it will save you. Jesus Christ. Look, if you have a Bible, and I'll finish with this. Flip over to our Gospel reading, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king. Just like in Exodus chapter 1, we have a king threatened by the work of the one true God. And just like in Exodus, it ends in the killing of babies. This is a pattern that goes on and on and on. Notice verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. Here we have again an idol that's been exposed and it turns violent because it's threatened by God. The salvation that God offers is not greeted by love, but by hysterical fanaticism that borders on madness. And it has the fingerprints of Satan all over it. There is an evil, malevolent force in this world. And if we give ourselves to anything but Jesus at our core, that force will start to ravage us. Once we choose to reject the authority of Jesus, we end up creating gods for ourselves. And it might be power, it might be the environment, it might be your family reputation, but it takes on a destructive force. There are many gods in this world. But Yahweh is in a class all by himself. He alone is the universal creator. Yahweh alone is the sovereign ruler over all histories. Yahweh alone is the judge that will judge all the nations. Only God in Jesus is the savior of all people from all nations who turn to him. He is in a class of Godship that nobody else is in. He is unrivaled in his power. The earth and the heavens belong to him. All the other gods in comparison are non-gods. They cannot protect. They cannot deliver. They cannot give ultimate life. Nothing compares to Yahweh. When you follow the storyline of the Bible, you get to the climactic moment. There is Yahweh, this amazing, all-powerful God who has taken on flesh. And at the cross, we find this conflict that rages through the Bible condensed into one single moment. And there we see the indestructible determination of Yahweh's saving love and the implacable madness of human and satanic hatred turning into lethal violence against the only innocent one, Jesus Christ. And he suffers all of that violence, that hatred. He absorbs it, and he pays the cost of it, and he turns it into the agent of its own destruction. And if you turn to Jesus, and if you will root out 
your fault, your allegiances, competing with your allegiance to Jesus. And if you will repent of that and turn in your heart in faith to Jesus Christ and give him your ultimate loyalty, he will deliver you to himself. And then you will really be able to live for the life of the world. May the Lord Jesus Christ bless us and help us and give us the grace in the days ahead to see that we are a nation of idolaters. Let's pray.